This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For other sermons from Antioch, you can visit the church website at antiochchurchnc.org. Now, let's turn our hearts to the Word of God. Um, I always know it's going to be a fun week when Pastor Mark includes in his email, um, I'm sorry, this is your passage. So, all right, here we go. Genesis 19.30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father." So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Well, thank you, Laura Beth and... Thank you, worship team. Welcome this morning, those of you who are with us in person and those who are online. You know, I don't know why we have mosquitoes, and I don't know why this passage is in the Bible, but God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen both for us. When we last saw Lot and his daughters, they were living in Zoar, right? Why were they living in Zoar? Because Lot was afraid to go all the way to the hills, afraid that he would not make it to the hills, and now we see that Lot's afraid to live in Zoar. So where does he go? To the hills. He takes his daughters there, and they move into a cave. Fear took him to Zoar, and fear pushed him out of Zoar. I like what Donald Gray Barnhouse said: When a man is out of the will of God, he's haunted by the bogies of his imagination. Everything is fearful to the man who is not in the center of God's will, walking in His purposes and carrying out His plans. Everything is fearful. You just have to wonder, too. Maybe you wondered that this week. Why in the world didn't Lot see that his life had been on steady decline since when? When did his life start to decline? When he left Abraham. (laughs) He left Abraham and went east and ended up in Sodom. He's lost his wife, and now he's living in a cave with his daughter. Now, look, I know he left Abraham because of land and water. That's not an issue now. He's living in a cave with his two daughters, they don't need water and land for their livestock. They don't have any. Why did he not just not just walk, but run as fast as he could back to the Oaks of Mamre and back to Abraham? Was it because of, of shame? Was it because of his pride? Or was it that his mind was so dulled by fear and depression that he can't think clearly anymore? Whatever the reason, this is a story, his last story. He's mentioned in the Bible other times, but this is the last we're going to hear of him in Genesis. This is, this is a story of a man of God. He belongs to God. He's righteous lot, 2 Peter 2. He belongs to God, 
but his life does not end well. And I know older guys like me, our prayer is, oh God, please don't let me stumble across the finish line. Let me end well. Let me hit the tape in such a way that I will have no shame left for my ancestors or descendants after me. So the metaphorical and the physical descent into the darkness, the blackness, the isolation of this cave is sad enough, but it gets even worse as we just heard. Let's look at the end of Lot's story under two main points, descent and descendants. Just when we think life could not get any worse for Lot, it gets horribly worse. But look, make no mistake, listen carefully, Lot is not a victim in this story. His daughters are not without blame, and what they do is unthinkable, but they were their father's daughters. Children learn by what they live with. Right? Lot's own corruption, I believe, paved the way for his daughters to make the choices that they're going to make. His worldliness in the home, as a leader in the home, set the course for his wife and his daughters. And even though each of them, Lot's wife, his two daughters, are responsible for their choices, Lot did not make his daughters hatched the plot. Lot did not make his wife look back and end up losing her life. But look, his decisions, his lifestyle, his character, his lack of true leadership in Sodom and in his own home made it easier for them to go to a very dark place. So this is a cautionary tale for all of us. This is why this is in the Bible, I'm convinced, because this is a story of a man of God who was not living a godly life, and the costs were tremendous you know it's like we said sin will take you places or keep take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay so verse 31 the firstborn basically said to the younger our father's old there's not a man on earth for you and me so many things wrong here wrong on so many levels first we see that the fear lot had that had made lot flee to the hills and live in a cave has taken up residence in his daughters. Her fear, the older daughter, is, is that they are so isolated, listen, that there is no possibility for marriage and motherhood. There's no possibility for them to carry on this line. There's no possibility for them to be economically cared for because in that culture, you had to have a, 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 a breadwinner and very difficult for a single woman to, to live. By herself, so, so there's a fear here that they're so isolated, there's no way. But the truth is what God had said to Abraham and Sarah is anything too hard or too wonderful for the Lord. So I would say to young ladies and young men who entertain the thought, and I've heard that voiced every now and then, that there is no possibility you could ever find a godly husband in little old Burlington or a Godly wife in little old Alamance County or anywhere else for that ma- anywhere else for that matter, I would say to you, your God is too small. Right? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So replace that fear with faith. God's able to move heaven and earth to bring you the spouse in the time that He decides it's right for you to wherever you are, even little old Elon. The second thing wrong I see here 
is the deadly influence the older daughter has on the younger. She encourages her to join her in getting their father drunk so that she says we may preserve offspring from our father. Now, if I ask for a show of hands here, how many of you were, had an older brother or a sister, or how many of you were that older brother or that older sister who led your younger siblings into sin, I think a lot of hands would go up because it's so common, isn't it? But look, let me say this. Those younger daughters, were not. she was not the victim here. She was not the victim. Older brothers and sisters have a tremendous opportunity and a godly opportunity to do just the opposite of that, to be an encouragement and an example of faith to their younger siblings. So I challenge all of you older kids to take up that mantle. That, that not, it's not a job, it's, it's a privilege. But let me say to the younger kids in here, you don't have to listen to your older brother or your older sister when they say, hey, why don't you come over here and try this? Hey, let's go over here and do this together. I'll help you do it for the first time, right? We could all tell stories. Probably a lot of us older folks could tell stories about it. I mean, you, you could... You could say no. In fact, the younger daughter could have said here, what are you talking about? You have got to be kidding me. You know that's wrong. Even the pagans that live around us know that that's wrong. She didn't do it. Why? Because she was also a daughter of Lot. And her her moral compass and her older sister's moral compass And their mother's moral compass had been corrupted. Sodom was in their souls. So they used wine to get their father drunk, but alcohol also cannot be blamed for Lot's sinful actions that followed. As Kent Hughes writes, alcohol was no excuse. Lot's drunkenness simply facilitated the working out of the dark side of his own heart. He said sin was alive and well in righteous Lot's family, and he was the father of it all. That leads us to the second point. This is a short passage. It's going to be a short sermon. Descendants. So what happens next is both of Lot's daughters become pregnant by their father, and each daughter gave their son a name, which is ironic, comical, sad, all at the same time. Because the name that they gave to their sons tells the story of where these sons came from. (laughs) Right? Moab sounds like a Hebrew word that means from father. And Ben-Ami means son of my people or son of the nearest kinsman, in this case, father. And these two boys, as you know, would become the father of the Moabites and the Ammonites, two tribes that would bring great suffering to the people of God. We'll look at some of that. And great suffering to the people in those tribes. But there will be a mercy as well. Hang on for that. We'll get to the mercy that God brings in this situation. So when Moses writes this, remember, I've told you countless times now, but Moses is writing this in the wilderness. He's going into the tent of meeting. He's meeting with God. And I believe almost that God dictated this to Moses. I mean, how would Moses know about creation and, and the flood? But he, he, he's writing this, and, and, and he's, he, when he writes this story, 
He knows that this will give the people, the children of Israel, who've come out of slavery and now are in the wilderness getting ready to go into the promised land, it would give them an understanding of these tribes that they have already encountered. By the time we get to Moses writing this, they've already encountered the Moabites and the Ammonites. In fact, God says to Moses in Deuteronomy 2, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for possession, because I've given Ar, that's the land, to the people of Lot for possession. And then in 2.19, And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I've given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. Now, interesting, God honors Lot in that way by giving his sons land that will not be taken away from them, at least for a while. But it's interesting because when you get to the end of Deuteronomy, near the end, God forbids the Ammonites and the Moabites from entering into the assembly of the Lord, Deuteronomy 23. Why? Because they had not given hospitality to the children of Israel as they came into Egypt. So at the same time, he, he gives them mercy, he protects their land, he also, there's a severity to it because the way they treated his people, they will not be allowed into the assembly of God. But then it gets worse. Later, as you read through the Old Testament, you see the corruption, the sensual and idolatrous corruption as, of Moab and Ammon as the seeds that came from Sodom spread and spoil. King of Moab, remember King of Moab, remember who he hired to curse Israel, right? He's going to pay Balaam money to curse Israel. And of course, Balaam's not going to do it, mainly because his donkey told him not to, but also he just knows he can't say something that he has not heard from God. So he was a true prophet. He wasn't a false prophet. But was Balaam a good man? No. You know, he wants to get paid. And Derek Kidner says, what follows is the worst carnal seduction in the history of Israel. So even though he wasn't a false prophet, he's not a good man, he wants to get paid, so he figures out a way to not speak lies to the king that God said, but to get money from him. He advised him on how to trap the people of Israel. Hey, you want to trap these people? Here's how you do it. You know, you, you bring in prostitutes, you bring in idols, and, and, and that's going to get them. So he's not allowed to, by God to curse Israel directly, but he gives the king a plan so that Israel will curse itself, will bring curses on, upon itself. And what follows, as the king follows the advice, is Israel falls into sexual sin with Moabite women, into idolatry with Baal, and God sends a plague and kills 24,000 of the Israelites. The Ammonites, you could almost make the case they were even worse. These were people who worshipped the god Molech, who is no god, but a statue that they came up with. He's the fire god. I'll show you the picture again in a minute, but uh, he has arms, and they would have a fire that would be built under him, and so these bronze arms would get to unbearable temperatures, and then families would come and hand their infants over to the priest of Molech and he would place them somehow with maybe long tongs or something onto those bronze arms that were smoking hot. 
Moses wrote about the Ammonites as a warning to the children of Israel. He says, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Like the, like the false god Molech, the Ammonites were a cruel people. You may remember the story in 1 Samuel 11 that Nahash the Ammonite was asked for terms of, of, of treaty by one of the, some people who were part of the nation of Israel said to, the, to this Ammonite, hey, can you, can you make a treaty with us so we can live in peace? He said, I'll do that. I'll be glad to do that. If, if I can gouge out the right eye of every one of you men, we'll have a treaty. The people were terrified. What do we do? Well, King Saul hears of this. And he's furious, and so he musters an army, and they plunder the Ammonites and wipe them out almost. Not completely. And so their terror continues. And you, you, know, you think about stuff like that, and think about this at Nahash, and, and you think, boy, I, I can't imagine a people of God ever becoming deceived into something like that. Can't imagine the people of God ever becoming a nation like that. And then you read 1 Kings 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, Moabite, Ammonite, and the list goes on. You can look it up. From the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Usually doesn't work the other way. Solomon's heart was turned away from God by his wives when he was old. Another old guy that doesn't finish well. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. He built the high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. There's more enough for any of us to naturally suggest, if you read the rest of the Old Testament about these two tribes, enough to, uh, for us to say, God, why in the world would you let those people live at all? In fact, when those two boys were born, why didn't you immediately just grind them to powder? Why did you not take those lives to spare your people suffering? Well, we know of one Moabite woman to whom God showed such grace and mercy that she will become the grandmother of King David. Remember the story? She left Moab and followed Naomi, an Israelite, back to Bethlehem where she met Boaz and married him and Ruth, the Moabite, is in the lineage of Jesus. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for him? What do we take from this story? I told you it would be short. What do we take from this story? Three things. Number one, fear often leads to deception and even to destruction. We are not wired by God to live in fear, but to stand on truth and to walk by faith. If you're making decisions as a husband or as a wife and they're based on fear, fear of the future, fear of whatever, then there's traps ahead. If you're making a decision as a as a follower of Jesus, and it's based on fear. Well, I'm not going to talk to people about Jesus because I'm afraid they'll laugh at me. I'm afraid I won't know what to say when they say, well, what about this? I'm not going to witness because of this. If you're afraid to, you know, to venture out uh, in that area or to, to, to give to the, to the 
offering plate because you're afraid you're not going to have enough to pay your electric bill. Look, a lot of times fears are simply a way of us shirking our responsibility. But if we're living by fear as a parent, we're parenting our children based on fear, we've all done it. Well, we've all done it. and We've figured it out and corrected, hopefully, before it's too late. Then there's going to be consequences from that. Number two, no person, whether it's a father or an older sibling or a king, should be able to convince you to do what you know is wrong to do. Even if everyone's doing it, wrong is never right. Now, this is, a, this is a terrible story, and I know that stuff like this happens. I understand that there are parents and siblings sometimes who abuse children who do not know how to stand up for themselves and say, no, we can't do that. And my heart breaks for them. And you know some of them, maybe, maybe that's you. There's no excuse for that. But I do know this, that God, God is able to deliver that child, that adult, that person who was put into that shameful, horrible condition, God is able to deliver them into wholeness and health and full-hearted devotion to Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Everybody? Yeah, he is. He's able. But look, we are all sentient human beings. We have minds. We can think. We have consciences. And when somebody says, hey, let's do that, and and it's wrong. No one should, no one, your wife, your husband, your boss, your elders, if we come to the pulpit and say, hey, we're going to all do this as a church and it's sinful, no one should be able to lead us to do what is wrong. Often, we don't need that encouragement. We just come to the wrong stuff on our own, right? All by ourselves. But no one should be able to convince us to do what is wrong. Number three, finally, God can and does rescue and redeem his people from any nation, any tribe, any family, no matter how wicked that family or that tribe or, yes, that nation may become. And we're quickly becoming that nation. But God has a remnant, and God will rescue his people. And it may, may not be through political reform. Rarely is. It's usually through revival of the soul and the heart, not through the ballot box. As Joseph will say to his brothers at the very end of this book, what men intended for evil, you brothers, God meant for good. And many times the wickedness that we see and experience, God is using even that to work and to bring about his purposes for his people. And for that, we can say, thank you, Lord. Praise God that we're not just down here flying this plane on our own, that he is the pilot and he's navigating his church through these storms and through the trials that are coming that will get worse at the same time that the remnant gets stronger and the faith of his people who really believe him will shine like gold. Let's end well. What do you think? Let's not be like Lot. Let's end well. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning for this difficult passage that you chose for Moses to include in the Testament uh, so that we can learn from it, so that we can be encouraged in it by your grace and your mercy, the, the mercy and the severity of God. At the same time, wonderful 
and, and glorious and painful and yet so necessary to the purpose for which you created this world in the first place. So we continue, Lord, to ask you to shape us and mold us and conform you to our image, to your image, and to help us to be people of God, not to give in to the pressures of those who would say, do it this way when we know that that way is wrong and sinful, but continue to follow you, not live by fear, but walk by faith and stand on truth. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. Antioch meets every Sunday for worship at 10 o'clock a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon. You can download other messages by Pastor Fox at antiochchurch.cc. You can also learn how to order his books or subscribe to his blog at jmarkfox.com.